Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Page 36. So, where Imam Ghazali, Imam Allah ended, that however, finding the like of such a shaykh with the qualities that he has described is harder than finding red sulfur. However, whoever is favored by good fortune in finding a shaykh such as that we have mentioned, in other words, with the qualities that we outlined above, and the shaykh accepts him as a student, then that student should have ihtiram, should respect should respect him outwardly and inwardly. So first the outward, and now for the outward form of respect. I'm going to read it and then I have to explain this to you. So I'm going to read it once. It says that you should not contend with him, nor engage in argument with him over anything, even if, and I'm reading it in this way deliberately to shock you, over, right, contend with him, nor engage in argument with him over anything. Even if he is aware of an error of the shaykhs, he should not lay his prayer carpet down in front of the shaykh unless at the time of carrying out, in time of offering the formal prayer. And when he is finished, when the shaykh has finished the prayer, he should remove the prayer carpet from him. The student should not increase the number of nafil prayers he prays in the presence of the shaykh. The student should do whatever task is commanded by the shaykh as far as the student can manage and is capable. Now this is, whoa, this is a little bit too much, right? That's what it may seem like. Let me explain each one to you so you understand. That's not too much. Yes. Number one, he should not contend with him or engage in argument with him. Alright. If you have a professor... You may discuss, you may politely say something. What Imam Ghazali is saying is don't contend and engage in argument. This is what you can't do. Now you would see that the shaykh is like the maqam of the father. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran that don't say uff to your parents. That doesn't mean you worship your parents. It doesn't mean it's shirk. But you do not contend and argue with your parents. So just like you do not take a hostile tone, an argumentative stance, a debating position with your parents, the same way is that you don't take a hostile contention, argumentative position with the shaykh. And that's what is being said here. Why? Because of adab. adab. Second, even if you are aware of an error of yours, of the shaykh, it's not saying don't point out the error. Don't try to fix the error. Saying that even if you know of an error, you cannot engage in argumentation and hostile contention. Just like even if your parents are wrong, you still can't say off to them. <laughs> Understand? Even if your parents are wrong, you cannot say off to them. Now you see why you need a teacher to explain this to you? <laughs> Otherwise, you read this paragraph and said, we got it. This is where the self is wrong. Finally. <laughs> he finally came to it. Hmm? No. Understand what is being said. Second, he should not lay his prayer carpet down. What does this mean? So this would mean that, okay, the shaykh is in the khanka. Just give you an example. Let's say I'm teaching you. And you're looking at the clock. And Muzammar here thinks it's really should be time for Zohar. So he gets up and he takes that musallam and he brings it over here. <laughs> right? Okay, well, I know it's time. I know what the prayer time is. Right? <laughs> I know when the prayer time is and specifically what is being said here that unless at the time of prayer so let's say Zohar is at 1 at 12.30 Muslim shows up and lays out the Musallah 
It's not even prayer time yet. <laughs> not even prayer time yet. This is all that's being said here. So read it again. Even in the English, it, it can be clear. He could not lay, he should not, the students should not lay the prayer rug down in front of the sheikh unless it is the time of carrying out the prayer. That's understood? Okay. When he is finished, he should remove it. Okay. When the, if the sheikh has finished the prayer, then you remove the rug. That's understandable. That's fine. Okay. He should not increase the number of nawafil in the presence of the sheikh. This has two meanings. Number one, it means that when you're on your own, you don't pray enough nafil after Maghrib. You're sitting with sheikh, all of a sudden you start to pray awabin. Hmm? You know, awabin, six nafil salah. <laughs> That's showing off. <laughs> That's doing it because sheikh is there. Second thing that is being said here is that if you're in the company of the sheikh, you're there to benefit. For example, when I was a professor, if a student comes to me in office hours and he starts praying, I'm very happy the student prays. But you don't come to me in office hours to do that. <laughs> you don't take an appointment for me and then come down and take your prayer rug and start praying in my office. This is when you were in my presence. I gave you this time so you could learn from me. You could ask me something. Right? The prayer should be done in your own time, in your own space. This is what's being meant. Again, sometimes people who twist, who like to just unnecessary malign us of the look, they feel it's more important to spend time with the sheikh than pray nothing. That's not what they're saying. But they're saying that when you're with the sheikh, you don't pray nothing. And so all of you decide to get up right now and start praying nothing. They say, you can't do that, not in the classroom. <laughs> right? You can go in the back and do that. You could go into home to do that. That's all that's being said here. Next, he should do whatever task is commanded by the sheikh as far as he can manage and is capable. This is understood here. It's not there's no assumption. People make the wrong assumption. Here's the complete opposite. You make the assumption, what if the sheikh commands me to do something in Sharia? He's not going to be a sheikh then. Is there any master sergeant who has commanded a soldier to do something against the handbook of the army? Never. <laughs> There's never been a master sergeant like that in the entire history of the U.S. Army. It's understood such a person doesn't become a master sergeant. So when you are told to do everything your drill sergeant tells you to do, it's guaranteed he's not going to tell you to do something against. Right? So the sheikh is not, it means that what the sheikh tells you to do, it's like a professor. When you go to class and the professor tells you, these are the readings you have to do, or these are the essays you have to write, this is the exam you'll have to take. So what does the entire university tell you to do? What does your parents tell you to do? That you should do what the professor tells you to do. Right? Is it elevating the professor to the rank of God? No. Is it worshipping the professor? No. So I'm amazed that the university student is perfectly fine obeying the professor, but they have a problem with the concept of obedience of sheikh. Why did you enroll in that class? Because you viewed that professor as a scholar of that field. Whatever requirements, readings, whatever method of assessment and examination he feels is required to train you in that field, you are willing to do that. That's why you view him as your professor. So that's the same thing with Sheikh. Got it? Next, as far as inward respect, inward, it is that everything that he hears and receives from the Sheikh externally should not be rejected by him internally. What does it mean? Don't go and listen to the Sheikh and then don't do what he tells you to do. Don't listen to the whole talk on lowering the gaze and then don't lower the gaze. Don't listen to the whole talk on love for Allah and then don't try to feel love for Allah. Don't listen to the whole talk on this, right? And then not try to do it. 
Not in one ear, out the other ear. That's what he's saying. That it should go into the ear and it should go into the heart. Neither the acts or statements don't reject the statements or the actions lest to be characterized by hypocrisy. Because the act of sitting in front of a teacher means that you're claiming you want to learn. But the purpose of learning isn't just to hear. The purpose of learning was amal, amal. Imam was like talking about this for so many pages. Amal, amal, amal. If he is unable, if he's not able to do it, let him leave his company. If you feel that, okay, the shaykh is going to be talking on this topic and I've already decided beforehand I'm not going to do it. There's going to be a talk on the importance of charity. I've already decided I'm not going to give any charity ever. Don't go to that talk then. Better that you don't go to the talk rather than you show up and sit in the talk Right? With no intention whatsoever to do amal on it. Okay? Let us leave the company of the shaykh then until their batin becomes consistent with their zahir. Our own shaykh sometimes says that outside they're Sufi, inside they're goofy. Hmm? Hmm? Ah, <laughs> in English. In South Africa. Outside they're Sufi, inside they're goofy. SNA. Not like that. Not like that. He should be on his guard. Now, the salik should, the student should be on their guard against associating with the wicked. Keeping company with those who are sinning against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Keeping, staying, being their friends, going with their gatherings. Muslim university students do this. They go with their non-Muslim friends to the bar, or would you call it the pub. They say, no, but I didn't drink. Okay, you didn't drink, fine. Not drinking, that got you, that moved you up from, I bumped you up from an F to an F plus. <laughs> you got an F plus. You went to the pub, you got an F. You didn't drink in the pub, okay, I give you an F plus. Is F plus a grade that you want? <laughs> no, I only had Coke. Or Shabash. <laughs> How could you even put yourself in that place? <laughs> How could you even put, no, but they're my friends. Okay. They could be your friend in the classroom. They could be friend in your lab. They could be friend over lunch. They could be friend in, in some halal, harmless activity. They cannot be your friend when they're engaged in haram. At that moment, the second they start drinking, at that moment they're not your friend. <laughs> your drinking coke doesn't keep them your friend. But Muslims don't understand that. They don't understand. So the salik, this traveler on the path, the spiritual traveler, remember? The one who's trying to attain the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa he or she, she has to stay away from this. She has to stay from being in the company of people who don't believe in Allah when they're engaged in disobedience to Allah. You want to talk chemistry with them, you're an English major, you want to talk literature with them, that is fine, right? But you can't go to the pub with them even if you drink a Coke. You can't go to the bop and the party. In the UK, you people are crazy. It's crazy, England. People, PhD students in Oxford do things that high school kids do in America. I don't know if it's just Oxford or you people are just crazy. I've never seen such a social life. It's ajeeb. Crazy. Crazy things go on in English universities. They're PhD students and they're going to a bop. I never heard this word before. It's like a high school prom. It's like an American that's in high school. I get the emails too. And they invite, I get invited to these things. And because I'm on the list, I get invited to these things. Right? Allahu Akbar. I was the first Muslim apparently in the history of Oxford to not wear a bow tie on their matriculation. I said, no, I wear shirwani. If you want, I wear my formal dress. 
So they were stunned by the request. They just so stunned. They said, "Okay, fine." And there was a couple of other Muslims. They were stunned. They said, and I said, "Well, I just told them that I said, look, you know, if you want me to matriculate, I wear shawal. You don't want me to matriculate, I go back. <laughs> Doesn't make a difference to me." They said, "Fine, no." They said, "You wear what you want. <laughs> you wear what you want." The only person who was really stunned was the photographer. I remember the poor photographer that day. This we were forced to do, was to line up for the picture, right? That fellow just staring the whole day. He was staring at me, all the time. All just staring at me all the time. Allah <laughs> Akbar. Ajeeb. Here, all right. He should be on his guard against socializing with the wicked, so as to check the power of the demons among jinn and men. Hmm. Min al jinnati wa nas. Nee Quran. <laughs> there are wicked people amongst the jinn and wicked people amongst the humans. How can we recite this verse and say, Allah, we seek protection from you from them and we ourselves go intermingle with them. We ourselves socialize with them. Hmm? And to be rid of the taint of villainy, to be associate and affiliate, accessory to crime. You drink the coke with the guy drinking the beer, you're an accessory to his crime. Hmm? You were his drinking buddy. <laughs> Fine, you were drinking coke, you were his drinking buddy. And at any rate, he should choose poverty over wealth. Right? If it's a choice, if this is the choice, you would have to choose poverty. Know that the Sawaf has two characteristics. Know that the Sawaf has two Istikama. That's what he's translated as correctness. Being strong and persevering in obedience towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And withdrawal. Withdrawal from humanity. What does it mean? It's actually the Arabic word is sukoon. So you wouldn't really call that withdrawal. Sukoon, being at peace with humanity. Right? was sukoon, being at peace with humanity. Alright? Faman istikama, that person who has istikama, that person who is persevere and steadfast in their deen, and masters their characteristics. What is actually the Arabic is asana. Here the translator is finding it a bit difficult actually to do this. But asana khuluqahu, and adorns and beautifies his character. Ma'annas, with all of humanity, not just with Muslims, with all of humanity conducts himself with the most noble character with all of humanity and then deals with them with hill, with mildness, with softness, with compassion, with gentleness for who is Sufiyun <laughs> that's who is Sufiyas istikamat on the deen what was the first thing? istikamat on deen and noble akhlaq asan the most beautiful, the most noble, the most virtuous akhlaq that is who Sufi is. It's Imam Ghazali is saying. What is istikama? Well, istikama to. So, but he's translated correctness. It's missed. This is he's looked at the dictionary to understood the term. Right? He's, this is a dictionary usage that could be used of istikama. He's not understood this properly. Istikama to persevere and be steadfast on deen is to slaughter the nafs for the sake of the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And what does it mean to adorn yourself and have the best of treat, best way of treating and dealing with all of humanity? Is that you don't get people to do what your nafs wants. But rather you try to get your nafs to do what people want you to do as long as what they want isn't against the Sharia. As you try to please others. You don't try to get others to please you. You try to be pleasing to them as long as being pleasing to them doesn't mean you go against Sharia. Next, you question to me about servanthood. So you get some notion. Remember, there were some questions that you asked that cannot be done through writing a discussion. Some questions that, fine, we will answer them on the basis of our other books. So that's what's going on. Next, you question me about ubudiyah. Ubudiyah. What does it mean to be the servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What is ubudiyah, abdiyat? What does it consist of? Number one, following the sharia. This is Imam Ghazali showing you. Tasawwuf and sharia are like this. Tasawwuf and sharia. There's no tasawwuf outside sharia. There's nothing in deen of Islam that can be outside Sharia. So the first means observing the complete commandments and code of the Sharia. Second, to be happy, to be pleased and content with the decree and decision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Third, is to fight against the unlawful, it means the unlawful pleasures of your nafs, and to search instead the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To fight the unlawful pleasures of your nafs and to search the pleasures of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he says, you question me, what is tawakkul? What does it mean to rely and trust upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He said, Imam Zahir said, that that is that your firm belief, itikad, your firm conviction, belief, creed about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised and warned, that will come, that will really be hap- really happen. Come to be sincerely held, actually, better way to put it, it will actually happen. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a reckoning. There will be a hisab. There is a jannah. There is a jahannam. I completely trust Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on these things. I have pure tawakkul. I have no doubt whatsoever about these things. Then because that Muhammad explains, I mean you should believe that what has been predestined for you will inevitably reach you. Even if all that is in the world tried to divert it from you. And what is not written will not come to you even if the whole world helped you. This issue about free will and predestination, that's a whole separate 90-minute lecture that we give. Very complicated topic if you want to really open it up philosophically. And this is a fascinating question, free will and predestination, that all of the major religious traditions, all of the major philosophies of the world have tried to tackle. Suffice it to say that Imam al-Ghazali actually here is not trying to bring up the philosophical question of free will and predestination. What he's trying to do is explain what tawakkul is. It means that 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 person who trusts upon Allah, Allah will be sufficient for them. Allah Ta'ala will help them. That help and sustenance and provision that will come from Allah, that was guaranteed going to come, all of the world will not be able to be able to divert it from me. He's linking it to tawakkul over here. Alright? Another discussion we'll have to do with you some other time. Top of 40. You question me about ikhlas. Ikhlas, true sincerity is that all of your actions and deeds be for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that your kalb, your heart not feel happy at all by other people's praises. So two types of ikhlas, that at the outset your deed is only for the sake of Allah and if sometime during that act or after that act somebody praises you, that has no effect on your heart whatsoever. It means nothing to you. Like for example, Let's say somebody told you that you have a very nice thumbnail. 
It, had no, it would have no effect on you. If I was to have, you know, a meter on your heart, the heart's happiness, it wouldn't go up a dot. Right? It wouldn't even, even a blip. <laughs> even a blip. That's how you should feel. Someone says, oh, mashallah, you're such a good this, or you're such a good that. It shouldn't affect you any more than if somebody said you had a nice thumbnail. Alright? Okay. That's ikhlas. That at the outset, it's for Allah, and during, if anybody else happens to find it praiseworthy, it doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't affect you in any way. So remember, tasawwuf is about what feelings you should feel and what feelings you should not feel. So before, we're talking about feeling, feelings of Qur'an. Now Ghazah is saying, just not a feeling you should feel. Feeling happiness at other people's praise, feeling conceit, vanity, self-praise. This is a feeling you should not feel. The only feeling that should give you happiness is maybe I've earned Allah Ta'ala's happiness. I've earned the pleasure of Allah. If somehow I can find out that I'm pleasing to Allah, that gives me a good feeling. If I discover I'm pleasing to people, that doesn't give me a good feeling. This is a feeling not to feel. Know that insincerity, lack of ikhlas, and not, you're not blind by their praise, nor do you care about their sense, or you don't feel bad if they're upset with you. They call you Molvi. Hmm? They get upset with you. It means nothing to you. It means nothing to you. Their censor, their blame, their reprimanding you has no effect on you. Right? When they're unjustly reprimanded, not when they're doing it to guide you and train you, right? When you're unjustly reprimanded, and in fact unjustly praised also, because we're not worthy of praise. Alhamdulillah, praise, all praise befits Allah alone. All praise, each and every single praise is only justly attributed to Allah. <laughs> So when we are unjustly praised or unjustly reprimanded, it has no effect on us. Know that insincerity is produced by overestimating mankind. Insincerity, overestimating them, thinking that if they praise me, I will go up, I will earn something. I'll get some maqam, some rank, some stature. You've overestimated them. Their praise of you means nothing. Who are they to praise you and what is their praise? What difference will it make to you? You've overestimated them. <laughs> You've given them a higher maqam than they actually have. The cure for it is for you to see all of humanity as a subject to omnipotence. Subject to omnipotence. In other words, and for you to reckon them as though inanimate objects. Subject to omnipotence means they're subjugated to the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That they're powerless. That's what in simple English, they're powerless. And for you to reckon them as though they're inanimate objects. Like imagine the wall is praising you. And they're powerless to bestow ease or hardship. They can't help you or hurt you. So you become free of insincerity towards them. What does it mean? You stop being matlabi towards them. Hmm? You stop ingratiating yourself with people because you want to earn their favors. You stop doing that now. Because you realize, who, uh, I need to earn Allah's favors. <laughs> I need to ingratiate myself with Allah. I don't need to ingratiate myself with this person. As long as you reckon them as having control and free will, as long as you think, no, this person has a lot of ability, and they can do this for me, and they can do that for me, and if I go up in their eyes, this will happen, and that will happen. As long as you keep thinking that, insincerity will not stay away from you, you will fall victim to insincerity. Ya Allah, my dear beloved son and student and disciple, as for the rest of your questions, some are covered in my work, so look for them there. And putting others down in writing is an offense. This repetition, we had this before, right? Act in accordance with what you know for what you do not know to be unveiled to you. Right? And he has mentioned to you on the bottom, this is hadith of Nabi Salam, that that person who does amal on the ilm that they have, Allah Subhanahu will give them more ilm. If you practice the knowledge that you have, Allah Subhanahu will then grace you and bless you with additional knowledge. Ya Allah, after today, 
Do not question me about what is difficult for you, except with the tongue of the heart. Ask me questions from your heart. On account of the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَلَوْ أَنَّهُمْ sabaru. If only they had been patient until you had come out for them. This is an incident that happened with the Sabikram were knocking away at the door of Nabi Karim Sallallahu And then Al-Sabatul sent revelation that they should have been patient. It would have been better for them if they had been patient that you and waited for you to have come out for them. And you would have given them Nasiha. And then gives another advice from the Quran Al-Kareem. It was, I said, accept advice of Khizr. He is spelt it this way because he didn't understand that either the translator Khizr Khizr very famous personality again some view him as a Nabi others view him as a Wali our own understanding is that he's a Wali radiallahu ta'ala anhu right and this is a very famous story of interaction between him and Sayyidina Musa salam in Surah Kahf so accept his wife when he said who did he say this to he said it to Musa salam فَلَا تَسْأَلْنِي عَنْ شَيْئِنْ that don't ask me about anything until I mention it to you. It will be mentioned to you in its proper time and proper place. So do not rush so that you may see, reach the proper time and it will be unveiled to you and you will see it. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, I will show you my signs so do not hurry me. So do not question me prematurely and be certain that you will not arrive without spiritual travel on account of his statement, have they not traveled the earth and considered. What does he say? Innaka la tasilu illa bisayr. The translator is not, it's getting difficult for him here, right? Because he's not a Muslim, he's not from this tradition. So he's reading Arabic words, he's not understanding how they're being used. So he's giving you very plain Jane dictionary usages of the word and it's making English quite difficult at this point. Maybe the other one is better, I don't know, right? Here it's getting quite difficult. What he means is spiritual travel is saying that you will not get there without sayr. In other words, it's going to be a process. That's all I was saying. It's going to be a process. I can't teach you everything. That's what Imam was saying. I can't answer all your questions in one shot. I won't be able to write you a risala that covers everything. So we've told you quite a bit. And now understand the rest of the stuff will unfold over time as part of a learning process. Simply speaking, Ghazal is saying learning is on an instant. Learning is a process. Learning is a journey. And just like that, developing your spiritual self is going to be a journey, not an instant. And then he quotes this ayah of the Qur'an al-Karim. That if all had they not traveled and journeyed over the earth, then they would have considered or they would have seen. Alright? Alright. Page 42. My dear beloved son and disciple, by Allah, if you travel, you will see marvels at every stage. What does this mean? He meant that if you progress in your deen, you will be amazed. You will see marvels. If you start praying all the faras and sunnah, you will feel something. Then you start adding nafil, you will feel something. Then you journey further, you start praying tahajjud, you will feel something more. You start learning more Quran, you will feel more. Making more dua, you will feel more. Making more dhikr, you will feel more. This is what Imam Zai is trying to say. Like Allah subhanahu wa said in Surah Rahman, Every day he manifests himself in a new sha'an, new majesty, new sha'an and shokat for the believers. So those who are traveling and seeking Allah Subhanahu's pleasure, they they feel, experience this new shan of Allah Subhanahu's every day. Persevere, have istikama. You need istikama and sabr. Have istikama and sabr. Like Allah Subhanahu said in Quran, I'm just extra son here. Fastikim kama umirta wa man taba maak. Allah Subhanahu told Nabi Yakrim have istikama. The way you were commanded, wa man taba maak, and those who have made tawbah to you, bil wasita or bila wasita. Those who have made tawbah with you, so this is a silsilat tawbah. 
We've made Tawbah with somebody who made Tawbah with somebody who made Tawbah with somebody who made Tawbah with somebody back to Nabi Akrim sallallahu alayhi wa So we have to have istiqamat and persevere. And this is as Dunun al-Misri said to one of his students, if you can have istiqamah, then try to travel this path. And if not, then do not engage in, this English is not the proper word, your travesties, do not engage in the training, really, it means the test, testful training of the people of Tasawwuf. That was in that day and age when the training was extremely intense. Now the training is very light. <laughs> very light. <laughs> Gentle blow, like you blow a feather, gently trying to blow. Imagine if I tried to take a feather and blow it from this side of the room to that room. So that's much lighter <laughs> the so of in this day and age. The so of light in this day and age. But in the early days, Raghra, in the early days, oh, strong terbiya. Strong terbiya. So in those days, the said, don't do this if you're not ready for it. Don't do it. It's training. It's intense training. These days it's light training. Now Imam Ghazali is going to give some nasiha. Oh, Yahya Halbaladu, my beloved son, disciple, and student, I advise you about eight things. Another eight. We had eight from there, another eight. Accept them from me, lest your knowledge become a liability for you on the day of judgment. O oh, Alim, O oh, young, budding Alim, accept this nasiha from me. I will advise you how to give nur to your ilm, Nabi Akrin al-ilmu nurun. And if you don't, that ilm could come up against you. Accomplish four of them and give up for us. Four advices, four things to do, and four things not to do. Simple. Number one. He starts with the ones that you shouldn't do. Four things not to do. Number one, do not argue with anyone regarding any issue. Don't engage in mubahatha, mujadala, munazra, in argument, disputation. Don't get into arguments with people regarding any issue insofar as you're able. Don't think I'm a fresh alim and now my job is to argue and dispute and refute every single person in the world. SNA. <laughs> Don't argue. Don't argue to the extent that you can stay away from argument and disputation since there is much that is harmful in it. Its harm is greater than its benefit. This is actually a Quranic phrase the Imam is using here. That its harm, its sin is greater than both. For akbaru min naf'iha. Its sin and evil is greater than its benefit. For arguing is the origin of every ugly character trait. Arguing and being argumentative and confrontational and disputing with people will cause insincerity, envy, haughtiness, resentment, enmity, boastfulness and so on. Certainly if an issue arises between you and some individual or between you and your group, and your intention in regard to that issue is that the truth be known and not lost sight of, then discussion, not argument, discussion is allowed to you. However, there are two ways you can check whether you indeed have this intention that you want the truth to be revealed. The first is that you make no distinction between the truth being disclosed on your tongue or that of somebody else. Go into an open discussion. Maybe that person will turn out to be true. Go on with an open mind, I'm going to discuss this issue, that this is my position, that is your position, and I need to openly try to discover what is the truth. If that's your intention, if you think there's a possibility the other person could be true, then you can say we're having a discussion to discover the truth. But if you already think for sure the other person is wrong, then you can't say I'm having this discussion to discover the truth. There's no discovery, you already know the truth, you claim you're on the truth, there's no discovery process going on. Right? 
And the second is that discussion in private be preferable to you than in public. Don't go slandering somebody in public. Don't say, I'll debate you in any form, any place, any time. Go to the person, visit them, take a gift for them, sit them down. Let's have a heart-to-heart, just the two of us. No need to get into any politics and public debates and that. Look at the training of the ulama Imam Ghazali is doing. Tarbiyat al-ulama. Shaykh al-Mashaykh is Imam Ghazali. Murabbi al-ulama. Better that you have discussion in private. That's what we used to try to explain to some of these TV scholars in Pakistan. That before you launch your radical new ideology on the world, Why don't you come and present your views to some alim? Have a little discussion. Right? But they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Listen, Imam Uzzai says on page 45, I will mention to you something. I will mention to you something useful at this stage. Understand that questioning about difficulties is, as it were, showing the sickness of the heart to a doctor. So saying that when you question me, O student, about the difficulties you're facing, it's just like when a patient goes to the doctor, right? Okay. And replying to it, and my attempt to reply and give answers to your questions, just like the doctor is trying to cure the sickness of the patient. Know now that the ignorant are sick at heart. Somebody who is ignorant is actually sick has a sickness in their heart, and the knowledgeable people are the doctors, and they have to use their knowledge to cure the sickness of the ignorance in the ignorant people. So the man of inadequate knowledge is not expert even in nursing. Nor will the wholly knowledgeable man, completely knowledgeable man, treat every patient. The one who has a little bit of ilm can't even, like I, I can't be, I have a little bit of ilm of medicine. Actually, I pretty much have zero, but I must have something. So I have a little bit of ilm, doctor. I still have medicine. I can't be a nurse. I can't even be a nurse. <laughs> I can't even be a nurse. At the same time, the person who is an alim, so he's telling him that, look, you're a young alim. If you have a little bit of ilm, look, you won't be able to treat every ignorance. You won't have that ability. And let's say you're a really big alim. Let's say you are generally big alim. Even then, every doctor doesn't treat every, every illness of every patient in the world. Even if you have your complete knowledge, but even then you can't treat every patient. Who will you, how will you decide? Instead, what that doctor will do, he will treat whoever longs, whoever yearns to get treatment and help. That person who really wants, who tells the doctor, you know, tell me whatever you tell me, I'll stay away from it. If you tell me I can't eat sweets, I won't eat it. Right? So the doctor will sit down and give that person time, then it's clear this person wants to be cured. If the sickness is chronic or incurable, even the expertise of the doctor in regard to it is to state that it is incurable. That's it, he can't cure it. His expertise lies in diagnosing and realizing it's incurable. There may be some people in this world who have incurable ignorance. This is what Allah Ta'ala says in Quran. Summun umyun bukmun. Other place in Quran, khatamullahu ala It's incurable. They have incurable diseases. You can't. But your ill lies in being able to tell that that's the incurable one, that's the curable one, I put my effort here. That's where your knowledge can be used. It's training the alim how to make use of this time. That you have this precious treasure called ilm that has to be used to put newer in people's heart. But don't try to do it all the time for everyone. Next, know that this disease of ignorance is of four kinds. Only one of them, the first is curable and the rest, the other three are incurable. <laughs> Only one of the four are curable, the other three are incurable. As for what is incurable... As for those three that are incurable, the first of those three, 
It's someone who's questioning or arguing with out of their envy and hate. They come to you, they challenge you, they question you. They call you out, they want to argue with you. Why? Not because they're looking for the truth. Not because they're trying to learn. Not because they think they're ignorant, they want to be cured. Not because they want to become enlightened. Because they have envy and hatred for you. Whenever you answer him with even the best, clearest, most evident reply, it only increases them in hate. <laughs> yes, we've experienced this. <laughs> only increases them in their hatred and hostility and envy for you. They're even more upset. They're even more upset. You treat them with good adab and akhlaq, they have more hatred for you. They'll have more hatred for you. You go with adab and you try to be nice to them, they'll be even more upset with you. You understand? They become irritable. They're so upset because they, they want... They, they try to demonize you in their mind. It's a psycho, psychotic disease they have. They've tried to demonize you in their mind. You turn out to have to be nice and you're willing to be nice to them. They get more upset. <laughs> they get more upset. So the modus operandi is not to engage in replying. Disengage. Do not reply. Do not try to patch things up, clear up the air. Don't try to do that with this person. Because their ignorance is incurable. It's an incurable thing. It has been said, and again he quotes the poem, an end may be hoped for every hostility, but he who is hostile to you through envy, no, there's no hope for that end for that hostility. There can be a truce and a ceasefire to every war, but that war that is actually based on envy. Hmm? It's based on envy. How dare you have a system that is rival to secular liberalism? That can never end. <laughs> that can never end. <laughs> Never. Thus you should turn away from that person and leave them with their sickness. Accept that they're incurable. What can you do about it? That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran al-Kareem. فَأَعْرِذْ أَمَّنْ تَوَلَّا أَنْ ذِكْرِنَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying in Quran to all of insan for all of eternity. Turn away from that person who stays away from our dhikr, from the dhikr of Allah. وَلَمْ يُرِدْ and they want nothing other than the life of this world. This is the only thing they desire. Allah Ta'ala is saying, stay away from them. Allah Ta'ala is saying in Quran, they have an incurable disease. They want zero zikr and they only want dunya. They're incurable. Don't go to them. The envious man in whatever he says and does sets fire to the crop of his deeds. As Nabi Karim so some that hasid devours good deeds just like fire devours wood. So the first type of incurable ignorance was the ignorance of the person who had envy and spite and hatred. Second, the second type of incurable ignorance is the one who has foolish as a sickness. And he too is incurable. And here again Imam Ghazali wrote Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. Sayyidina Isa said that verily I was not incapable of bringing the dead back to life. Because I can bring the dead back to life, but I was incapable of curing the fool. <laughs> Allah Akbar. <laughs> I couldn't bring the dead back to life. I can I can bring the dead back to life, but I can't take the fool out of his ignorance. This is someone who spent a small time in pursuit of learning. You will find this achieved because I is writing 950 years before these current debates that happened in the UK is plagued with this. One person goes to one halak on hadith and all of a sudden he's a muhadith. He knows everything about hadith and fiqh now. So where did you learn that? <laughs> I wish you had told me. <laughs> I've been studying this for 16 years. If I, I wish you could tell me or that I could get it in one day. I wouldn't have spent 16 years on it. 
He goes to one day course on fiqh and hadith and he now he's a master. He knows everything about which faqih is true to hadith, which faqih is against hadith. He knows it all. Which hadith is say, which hadith is say, which mujtahid is right. Allah Akbar. <laughs> Ajeeb. <laughs> Imam Uzzah is writing this 950 years ago. He doesn't know. He doesn't know about the debates you guys have in the UK. You guys are infamous amongst us Americans, by the way. <laughs> and Birmingham. Allah Akbar. <laughs> I told one person I'm going to Birmingham and told me you're going to Birmingham's a war. He was an American convert. He said to me, Birmingham's a war zone. I said, Allah, what do you mean? I had no idea what he meant. And then he told me. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, Allah has kept me free from that war zone. <laughs> so far we haven't experienced it. Allah Ta'ala save us from that. Right? So Sayyidina Isai Islam said, I can't bring to you the fool. Who was the fool? This Ghazali right 950 years ago. It's not me. Who is it? Someone who spent a small time in pursuit of learning few halakas. Hmm? Small time in pursuit of learning. Studying something in the way of non-revelatory. Who has a couple of degrees from the university. And revelatory knowledge, a couple of halakas along with that. Hmm? couple of halakas along with that. So out of his stupidity, he interrogates and queries the great scholar who has passed his life in the non-revelatory and revelatory sciences. And this idiot in his ignorance, and here the guy's English is getting pretty good. And this idiot in his ignorance thinks that what is a problem for him is also problematic from the great scholar. Now this hadith, is just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to you, right? Can you try to sit back and look at the commentaries of hadith and see how do the muhaddisin understand this hadith? Or oh, this hadith goes against Quran. No. Your uncle's understanding of this hadith is not compatible with your uncle's understanding of this ayah. <laughs> The Mufassirin's understanding of this ayah and the Muhaddithin's understanding of this hadith are completely fine. But this ruling of fiqh is against the hadith. No. That single one hadith that somebody showed you from the workshop and hid the rest of the workshop from you, that single hadith, the way it's been presented and taught to you, yes, that is against this legal ruling. But not the sunnah. Sunnah is the whole workshop. Sunnah is the whole workshop. Right? Since he, does, since he does not even know this much, his questioning is due to his foolishness and you should not engage in answering him. Imam Shafi has a similar quote that I could debate a hundred scholars, but I can't debate a single ignorant person. <laughs> Don't ask me to do that. Third, third type of ignorance that is incurable is someone asking for guidance. Now, watch this. This is a bit sad, this one. Asking for guidance. And everything he does not understand in the discussion of the great scholars is put down by him to the shortcomings in his own knowledge. He says, look, that there are all these debates, you know, I don't know enough about that stuff. I can't figure that out, right? And his questioning is to learn. He wants to learn. However, he is unintelligent. Happens sometimes. He doesn't grasp realities. It takes a certain level of intelligence also to understand all these different hadith and all the different legal positions and sometimes somebody comes to you and you're confronted with that problem he lacks the intelligence to understand this issue he's sincere, he's genuine, he's humble but he doesn't have the intelligence right? understanding how to harmonize all the different hadith positions that's not 10th grade level stuff that's not Birmingham community college level stuff I mean just being blunt here, right? How, what, how, how are we supposed to explain it to somebody? So Ghazali is telling the alim, don't try to do that either. Don't try to do that, it won't work. Because it's just like he's trying to save the alim from the trouble. He's saying it just won't work. It won't work. 
And then he quotes the hadith of Nabi Akram, you should not engage in answering matters. Nabi Akram said that we, the assemblies of the prophets, all of the Anbiya, have been commanded to address people in proportion to their intellects. As for that sickness of ignorance, which is curable, it is that of someone asking for guidance who is intelligent and understanding, who would be able to understand the answer that is given to them, who is not overwhelmed by envy, anger, the love of reputation, prestige and wealth, he is a seeker of Sarat al-Mustaqim, the straight path, and whose questioning and querying are not out of envy, obstinacy, or desire to test. This person is curable. It is permissible to engage in a reply to their question. In fact, he's telling that young alim, replying to him is obligatory on you. Look at the training. This is a manual for ulama. <laughs> Should be required in every institute of Islamic learning, part of the curriculum. <laughs> that was the first thing not to do. Not to engage in argumentation. Second thing not to do is that you are on your guard against becoming a preacher or admonister. This I'll explain to you. He's actually saying to the young alam, be a little bit careful now. Don't go straight out from graduation into lots of preaching, lots of beyonds fresh out of graduation. Why? Unless you first practice what you preach, then preach it to the people. Yes, ilm ko and let this knowledge settle inside of you. Reflect over it. Let it become firm. Let it transform you. Give it a chance to boil inside you and transform you. And then go out and guide people. This is why in our part of the world, in South Asia, when the young graduates used to graduate from the mother son become new ulama, they would spend about one year with some sheikh. They would first develop themselves, work on themselves, and then they would go out and invite people to the deen. Think of again what was said to Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. Ya ibn Maryam, that O son of Maryam radiallahu ta'ala anha, preach to your soul, and if it learns its lesson, then preach to the people. Otherwise show humility before your Lord. If you were put to the test with this occupation, if there's no, what can you do? There's so many people who need guidance. There's so much demand. You've come back and you've studied in India or Pakistan or Syria or Yemen or Mauritania and you came back to England and they say, we need you immediately. There's no time for you to go and do zikr and spend time working on yourself. So you may be thrust sometimes it's a need of the time. What can you do? Like somebody who becomes a doctor and enters the society where there are hardly any doctors, they're going to be forced to start practicing medicine immediately. So he says, okay, then be careful of two things. Training the ulama. Okay, if you have to do it without giving a chance to let it settle in and dominate over you first, if you have to do it straight after graduation, then be careful of two things. Number one is pretentiousness in talking. Don't be pretentious in your speech. Don't try to artificially use fancy words if that's not the way you normally speak or that's not your level of English. Don't affect airs and styles. Be wary of pretentiousness in talking by way of idioms, allusions, outbursts, verses and poems. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dislikes the pretentious. You understand pretentious to affect something, tasannu. Hmm? The pretentious and excessive man exhibits inward decadence and indifference of his heart. The idea of admonition, the reason to guide the person, is for the worshipper to recollect and remember the fire of the akhirah. And his own ribistness, his own slackness, his own overlooking. The ibadat, it's not service here, he's not the ibadat of Allah, the worship of Allah, 
So for the person to consider their past life, which they spent in doing things that didn't concern them or which were of no benefit to them, for that person to reflect on the difficulties that lie in front of them, such as the absence of firm iman. What's going to happen if my iman is not strong at the last moment of my life? When angel of death comes to me and he finds I have weak iman, what's going to happen to me? And the nature of his state and the clasp of malakul maut, angel of death, will he be able to answer the two angels, Munkin and Nakir, when they question him in the grave? That the worshipper should worry about his state during the day of judgment and its different stages, not episodes, its stages. And whether they will cross the bridge safely or tumble into the abyss and fall into Jahannam. The recollection of these things should remain in the heart and they should make they should make fast his I wouldn't say apathy, they should they should motivate him. They should take him out of his laziness. Upset is apathy. Apathy is okay. Upset. They should shake him out of his apathy. Shake him out of his laziness. Thinking about all of these things that are yet to come in the future. To foment these fires and lament these calamities is termed admonition. It's called tazkir in Arabic. Tazkir. Tazkira and tazkir. To admonish people. So Muhammad is telling him, okay, if you have to preach, these are the things you should try to be preaching people about. Page 50. Informing humanity and apprising them of these things. Warning them of their remissness and negligence. Making them see the defects of their nafs. So that the heat of these fires impinges on the congregation. And the calamities disturb them so that they make amends for their past lives. Again, this is a certain particular English way of translating. We would say jamaat, right, on the community. He's translating this congregation. For their past lives as far as possible. So they make tawbah, they make istighfar. And they are distressed by the days that they passed already in their life in disobedience to Allah. All of this is termed preaching. The Arabic for preaching is wa'ad. Wa'ad. It's as if you saw that a flood bore down on an individual's house with him and his family inside. And then you said to him, look out, look out, run from the flood. In these circumstances, does your heart long for you to give the owner of the house your message without pretentious expressions, anecdotes and illusions? You know, he's saying you'll talk simply and directly and plainly. You won't compose some poem and tell him poetically to run from the flood. He won't give him some fancy illusions and fancy language. And it doth befit thee that thou should turn and make haste of thy feet from the running waters that are coming upon thyself and thy kin. That's an A. Right? Not like that. He said, look out, look out, run from the flood. Allah straight, plain, simple, direct. Well, look out, look out, save yourself and your ahl from the fire of Jahannam. So he says it completely it would be completely repugnant to you to think of some fancy way to tell that person the situation of the preacher like th- is like this. And he should give them up. He should give these affectations and these fancy things up. He should speak to people simply and directly when he's trying to warn them and trying to get them out of their past life. The second trait, so he said if you have to do the preaching, keep two things in mind. Second trait is that your effort in your preaching should not be for the people in your congregation to roar, show hysteria, tear to clear their clothes. Oh, oh, oh what a bian, what a talk, what a lecture. Hmm? Va Like you say in people in Urdu, they love to do shir shari, va, 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 va. They just sit there and one of them 
One day, the uncle gets up and he starts recitating his poetry, and they're all saying, Wah, wah, wah. Then he sits down, the next day, the uncle stands up and says his poetry. They're all saying, Wah, wah, wah. So it's about a gathering that it was. For all this is worldliness, this is also dunya. This is also dunya. Allah Akbar. Such a manual. Manual. Tight. Tight. And this is, that is produced by indifference. It means actually you're indifferent to their inner condition because you're overly sensitized to their outward praise. If you become overly sensitive and noticing their outward praise, it means you become desensitized to their inward condition. So it means that you are also addressing their minds so that they would say something with their tongues. When you were supposed to be addressing their hearts so they would do something with their hearts. For all this is dunya that is produced by indifference. Rather, your zealous intention, your firm desire, your passion must be to lead people away from the dunya and towards the akhirah. Away from sin into obedience. Away from desiring the world into being free of desire from the world. Away from being stingy and miserly into being generous and giving. Away from doubts and skepticism into firm certainty and conviction. Away from indifference and laziness into becoming vigilant and aware and always conscious of Allah SWT. Away from illusions and delusions and bringing them into God consciousness and to taqwa. You should invoke in them a love for the Akhirah and a loathing for this dunya. You should teach them about ibadat and zuhud. Zuhud means not to have any feelings for the world. To be in the world without feeling for the world. To have the world without loving the world. Do not allow them to be complacent due to the kindness of Allah SWT on them and His mercy. Since predominating in their natures is disinclination from the path of Sharia. It's human nature to be lazy. Human nature to leave the commands of Allah. Your job, he's telling the preacher, your job is to take them away from that. Drive in. Let them hammer home, instill in them, inculcate in them. What displeases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Make them really feel that. That act is displeasing to Allah. And getting tripped up. Not getting tripped up by bad morals. Save them from being caught up and tripped and deceived by bad morals. Put fear into their hearts. Alarm them. Put them on their guard regarding the dangers they will face. Perhaps their inward qualities will be transformed and then their outward behavior will be changed. Some people ask also that how do I convince my wife? How do I convince my husband? You cannot directly call a person to change their outward. You have to call a person with as I saying here. You have to call a person to that inward feeling, that hal. Make them feel that feeling. Try to bring them to that feeling of Quran. Then they will start acting according to Quran. There's no way they're going to be able to act according to Quran without feeling feeling of Quran. So bring them to the feelings that lead to actions. Don't directly try to take them to the action. But my son, pray, pray, pray. Asnay. <laughs> Try to put inside your child the feelings that he would want to pray. Once he gets those feelings, that's your job. Once he gets those feelings, he'll start praying. <laughs> and if you try somehow that he should bypass, and without those feelings, he should start praying, and you should directly just tell him to do the action, it won't work. It won't work. This is what Imam is trying to say. Alright? So then he says that this then... Uh, perhaps their inward qualities will be transformed and our behavior exchanged means it will be changed. They will exchange the bad for the good. Acquisitiveness and appetite will be exchanged for obedience. 
and for repentance from disobedience. And for repentance from disobedience will appear. This then is the right way to preach and advise. This is the right way to do tazkir and wa'az and nasiha. And all preaching not like this is a curse both upon the speaker and listener. If you preach without practicing, it will become a curse on you. And if you try to invite somebody, right, that you're addressing them just so that they praise you, that's a curse on them. And that all they're able to get from the talk is they said, oh, it was a great talk. That's not good for them. <laughs> that's not good for them if all they were able to do is praise the talk with their tongue. They have to be able to live it with their heart. So it's not going to be good for them either. Right? Nay, it is said that the former is a gaul, a demon, who sweeps men off the path and destroys them. And such a person is leading people astray. You may apparently think he's a preacher and teacher and guide to Allah. He's actually leading people astray. And they must run from him. Since this speaker will wreak havoc on their religion, the like of which shaitan himself cannot. Really, you know, I mean, a lot of what goes on in some places in the contemporary Muslim world. This is what's going on. They're trying to become preaching and coming up with their own new ideologies and thoughts for the wrong reasons. And they're actually causing havoc on the religion, the like of which even shaitan could not do. <laughs> That's what they're doing. It is incumbent on whoever who has the wherewithal and capability, if anybody has the ability to stop this person, stop them, to get him down from pulpits and prevent him from sermonizing, they should do that. Because preventing such a person, such a false preacher from preaching, is part of enjoining good and forbidding evil. It's part of Amr al-Maruf wa Nahyan al-Munkar. Very strong stuff Imam Uzzah is writing. Right? Very strong stuff, but still extremely relevant. Third thing. There are four things not to do. Third thing is that you should give up. Third thing to give up is that you have nothing to do with princes and rulers and ministers and governments. No. That's not our job. Not radical middle way or whatever it is. We're not. No, 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 no. That's not our way. No. Nor see them. Because the spectacle of them, gatherings with them, socializing them are serious danger. If you are put to the test by this, for some reason you have to do it. Sometimes it may happen that for some hikmah you may feel the need to do it. Maybe some of some of the people in that movement feel this hikmah. Allah right? Then how should you do it? You should avoid praising them and complimenting them. Go in with a professional decorum, with a detachment. Go in like a pro. Don't go in obsequious and like a sycophant and praising them and complimenting them. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the exalted is angered when a wrongdoer or tyrant is praised. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is angered when a wrongdoer or tyrant is praised. And whoever prays for their long life wants Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be disobeyed on earth. Don't go and make dua for them. Yes hmm? Because they are a tyrant. They are the source of the disobedience of Allah on earth. Fourth thing to give up is to accept nothing of the benefaction of princes nor their presence. Don't take anything, any patronage, financial support from the rulers of the time. Even if you know they are acquired legitimately. For expecting it from them degrades the deen. Having hopeful expectation that this prince will support me. That will degrade the deen. And that sycophancy, this kissing up to them, that's what it means in, in slang English, so kissing up to them. 
partiality for them. It will cause you to kiss up to them. It will cause you to be partial for them. It will cause you to be complicit in their tyranny or produced by it. When you're accepting the money of the sheikhs of UAE, you can't condemn the human rights violations that they do on their own Muslims. How can you condemn what they're doing to the Bengali and Pakistani Indian laborers and the Muslim Filipino maids that work there when you're also taking money from them? So you'll be silent about it. You won't speak out against it because you're on their payroll. (laughs) Even subconsciously, you feel indebted that he's supporting me, he's helping me, he's giving money from my masjid. So you won't be able to speak out. So Allah is saying, no, you're an alim. You must retain your independence to keep your integrity. Don't let yourself become dependent on the rulers and their money. It's a manual for ulama. All this is corruption in deen. The least of its harm is that when you receive their donations and you benefit from the material possessions, you will start liking them. It's just natural. You start liking that shaykh. <laughs> that, that's just a different type of shaykh I'm talking. That amir. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Sheikh. <laughs> You'll start liking him. <laughs> You'll start liking him. And whoever likes an individual will prefer him to have a long lifespan, unavoidably. Preferring the survival of the tyrant constitutes a desire for the creatures of Allah to suffer tyranny. People will keep suffering under their unfair laws, their lack of minimum wage for migrant Islamic Muslim labor. <laughs> They'll keep suffering under this person. And you like him and you want him to keep living because he's going to keep donating to you? Hmm? And a desire for the world's ruination. What is worse than this for Dean and our final end? So Imam was right 950 years ago. It's right now. We need all of this in 2010. Allah Akbar. Ta'ala. May Allah Ta'ala accept it from him. Beware, beware that shaitan's suggestions or some people's talk to you does not deceive you to the effect that the best and most appropriate thing is for you to receive the money from them and distribute it amongst the poor and beggars. It's another thing. That okay, I'll take money from them, but I'll give it away. I'll redistribute it. For they are wasting it on dissolute living. Look at this. <laughs> at least if I take it from them and I give it and use it, it's better than them using it on their palaces, right? Makes sense? The last thing, no, don't think like that. For they are wasting it on dissolute living and disobedience. And your spending on a helpless people is better than their spending it. For the cursed one has severed many people's necks by these whisperings. We've mentioned this in detail in Hiyal al so look for it there. As for the four things that you must do, so four things not to do, that's done. Four things that you should do. First is that you should make your relations with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala such that were a servant or slave of yours to behave thus with you, you would be content with him and not weary of liking him nor get angry. If you have a servant, or you have a slave, or you have an employee, Let's say you have an employee, he's been working on you for 10 years. After 10 years, one day when you walk into work and you tell him, okay, this is what I want you to do today. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. So I'm not going to do it. I don't feel like it today. You'd say, uh, this is what you're going to do today. <laughs> this, is, this is your daily task. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. You'll fire him. You'll fire him right there and then. You won't look that no 10 years he was a good employee. It means nothing to you. That's how we are with other people. That's how we are with an employee. One day of non-compliance is enough for us to wipe off 10 years of his obedience. If you say, I fire you, if he says, look, but for 10 years, every single day I came in and whatever you told me to do, I did it. You say, I don't care, you're not doing it, I'm telling you today, you're fired. (laughs) 
That's the level of compliance, employee compliance we want. So did we think how much compliance, Sharia compliance we should have? <laughs> how much we should comply to the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Did we ever think about that? This is what Imam Ghazal is saying. This is what he's telling the alim to do. You should obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want your students to listen to you, start listening to Allah. You want your community to listen to you in the Jummah Khutbah, start listening to Allah. This is what Imam Ghazal is training the alim. Whatever would dissatisfy you for yourself on the part of this hypothetical servant of yours. If you wouldn't like it that he's late, if you wouldn't like it that he doesn't even look at you with love, if he looked at you once with less love, you wouldn't like it. If that's how you feel about him, then you should think that this is something I don't want to do myself with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Chief, page 56. The second thing, second thing of the four things that you should do, is whenever you interact with people, deal with them as you would wish yourself to be dealt with. This is centuries before they came up with the golden rule. <laughs> Imam Ghazali is saying that deal with others the way you would wish to be dealt with by them. For a worshipper's faith is incomplete until he wants for other people what he wants for himself. This is Nabi Ibn Hadith. That a mu'min is not a completely true believer until he loves for his fellow believer what he loves for himself. Number three, the things you should do, that if you read or study knowledge, so you'll continue, as a young alim, you'll continue to read and study knowledge. Your knowledge must improve your heart. It must discipline your nafs. Just as if you learned that your life would only last another week. Inevitably, you would spend, not spend it in learning about law, ethics, jurisprudence, scholastic theology, and such like. It means you wouldn't go for a completely scholastic, academic, theoretical knowledge if you had just one week left. If I told you I have one week left to live, you would say, okay, I'm deciding to study some more fiqh. I'm going to study Maliki fiqh. You wouldn't do that if you had one more week left to live, right? Because you would know that these sciences would be inadequate for you. That's not going to help you. <laughs> not going to help you. Instead, you would occupy yourself with inspecting your heart, trying to figure out all the things you need to make toba for, discerning the features of your personality, giving worldly attachments a wide berth, in other words, casting them far away from you, purging yourself of ugly traits, and you would only occupy yourself in worshipping and praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and acquiring good qualities. And this is how we should always feel, this is what he's saying, and not a day or night passes for any worshipper, except that their death is a possibility in that day and in that night. Every day that we live, and every night that we live, death is possible. Death could possibly come to us in every day and every night. Forget one week later. Every day and every night is a real imminent possibility. Ya Yuhalwaladu, my dear and beloved son, listen to another statement from me and think about it to find salvation. If you were notified that the ruler would be coming to you on a visit in a week's time, I know that during this period you would be occupied with nothing other than putting an order, putting yourself in order which you knew his glance would fall on. You'd fix your clothing, your person, your house, your furnishings, your so on. You'd go and clean everything and fix everything and adorn everything because you'd be thinking that he'd be coming to look upon you. Now think what it is that I'm hinting at. Imam Zai is telling him, you are intelligent, you are a young alim. A single word is enough for someone who is clever. The Messenger of Allah, Sayyidina Rasul said that Allah does not look on your forms or on your deeds, but He looks at your hearts and your intentions. If you want to know the states, you want to know the knowledge, not the science, you want the ilm, the knowledge of the feelings of heart. 
what are the th- things my heart should be feeling according to Islam? Look at Ihya al-Mudin and other works of Ghazalis. This ilm, this knowledge and discipline is a farda ain. Yes, everybody needs to know how to feel feelings of Quran. This is farz. This is not optional. This is an optional Sufism. This is required deen of Islam to feel feelings of Quran. Except the... Um, and, uh, yeah. While others, extra things like that, extra, while well, other things, extra things are farz kifaya, collective obligation, except the amount of knowledge that is needed for obligations to Allah subhanahu to be performed. And it is Allah subhanahu who will grant you success in acquiring it. The fourth thing that you should do, and it's a kind of not to, but he's making it amongst the things you should do, is that you should not stock up more of the world's produce than is adequate for one year. So I told you some people three days, Imam is telling the alam, don't think maximum one year. Your savings, the amount of money you have in your savings account, young alam, should not be more than what you would need to live for one year. If you have more than that, give it away. Look at the training being given. Ajeeb. Don't stock up the wealth of this world more than one year. It means sometimes when we say we live month to month. <laughs> live month to month. Right? Hand to mouth. Month to month. Imam is saying maximum year to year. That's it. Don't go beyond that. Either hand to mouth, month to month, or year to year. As Nabi Akrim Sallallahu used to arrange this for one of his, one of the Umahat al-Mu'mineen and he used to make dua that, Oh Allah, make the risk of the family of Nabi Akrim Sallallahu enough. And he used not to arrange this for all of his wives. So it was one of the Umahat al he tried to arrange at least one year future expenses for her. Right? But he used to arrange it for that one in his heart. He knew there was a, relatively speaking, relative weakness because this is the end of the range. Hand to mouth, month to month, or year to year. But that's it. As for some of the Umahat women who were more confident, they could live month to month. And some of them were okay living hand to mouth. Some of them lived hand to mouth. And he wouldn't arrange more than half a day. <laughs> That's hand to mouth. Half a day sustenance for that one. Ya ayyuhal walad. I have addressed the things that you asked for. Now we're on the last page. I've addressed the things that you asked for in this discourse, in this letter that I've written you. I've addressed the questions you asked me to. I gave you the nasihat. And you must carry them out. And do not forget me in this. Allah Akbar. This is Imam Uzzai's humility. And do not forget me in this to mention me. Imam Uzzai telling a student. To mention me in your du'as. As for the prayer which you requested from me, you asked me to make du'a. Look for it amongst the du'as from the authentic hadith of Nabi Akrim Sassan. And recite this du'a during all the moments you have in particular. As a nafil, as an extra act after your sujood. And he makes this long du'a, this one page long du'a in Arabic. And this is where we will end this text. Inshallah now we will end and we're making du'a. So we'll read the du'a that Imam Ghazali has gifted to his student, which he has taken from one of the authentic lessons of Hadith. And we will add a little bit to that du'a. And then we will end inshallah this day's seminar. I beg you in regard to grace for completeness, and I ask you in regard to protection for its permanence, and I ask you in regard to mercy for its totality, and I ask you in regard to well-being for its realization, 
and I ask you in regard to livelihood for the most plentiful of risk, in regard to life for the most happy of lives, in regard to beneficence and grace for the most perfect beneficence, in regard to your favors for the most inclusive of your favors, in regard to becoming generous for the most sweetness, uh, sweetest of generosities, in regard to gentleness that you grant me the most intimate gentleness. Ya Allah, we ask that you be for us and do not be against us. Ya Allah, we ask that you enable our lives to end with happiness, that you make our hopes abundantly real, that you unite our mornings and evenings with one another in well-being, and that you entrust our destiny and future state to your mercy, that you pour your maghfirah over our sins, that you fix all of our faults, that you make taqwa our zad, that you make taqwa our provision, and that you make all of our striving and mujahidah to be for you and for your deen, and you make all of our hope and tawakkul to be in you, Ya Allah. We ask that you set us on the path of righteousness. Make us salih. Make us muttaqi. Protect us in this world from doing anything that will make us regret on the day of judgment. Lighten the weight of our sins. Endow us with the way of the life of the pious. Keep us away from the evils of the wicked. Ya Allah, release our necks and the necks of our fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters from Jahannam. By thy mercy, Ya Alhamdulillah Rahimin, Ya Ghafur, Ya Ghafar, Ya Satir al-Zunub, O Veiler of Sins, Ya Allah, you are omniscient, you are omnipotent, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Birahmatika, Ya Alhamdulillah Rahimin, Ya Awal al-Awwaleen, Ya Akhir al-Akhirin, Ya Dalkuwat al-Mateen, Ya Rahim al-Masakeen, Ya Arhamal Rahimeen La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-zalimeen Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem We make dua to you, we ask that you accept our reading of this text of Ghazali Our listening to this text of Ghazali Ya Allah, we ask that you put the meanings firmly in our mind and heart And Ya Allah, we ask that you put the feelings in our heart and in our life Ya Rabbi Kareem, on behalf of each and every one of us, we ask that you send the noblest of jaza onto the rue of Imam Ghazali. Ya Allah, shower him with good deeds for this sadaqah jariyah that he left for us, this lasting charity that he left for us, the ikhlas that was in his words, so much that even a non-Muslim translated his words into English, and today we read those English words on this day. Ya Allah, accept the ikhlas of Imam Ghazali and the nasiha he gave to his student, and Ya Allah, accept us with this niyat, and we too wish to be amongst the students. We wish we too wish to receive this nasiha. We wish to we too wish to adorn our lives with this nasiha. Ya Allah be true to the nasiha of Imam Ghazali and of all of the Aimma and Mashaykh of the Deen of Islam. Ya Allah we ask that you place in our hearts a love for all of the Mufassirin, all of the Muhaddithin, all of the Fuqaha Suliyin, all of the Awliya'i Kamilin, all of the Siddiqeen and Sadiqeen, all of the Salihin and Muttaqeen. Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to follow in their footsteps. Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to pattern ourselves after their pattern, to adorn ourselves with their noble characteristics. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we have gone far from you, far from the deen, far from Sirat al-Mustaqeem. Ya Allah, we are victims of every ignorance that Imam al-Ghazali highlighted. We are full of every sin and lustful passion that he mentioned. Ya Allah, we are in deep and dire straits. We are utterly needy and dependent upon you. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi 
Kareem, you are the most truest of Rabs, the most loyal Rab, the most loving Rab. Ya Allah, we ask that you make us your truest servants, your loyal servants, your loving servants. Ya Allah, we too want to be amongst Ibadik as Salihin. We too want to be amongst your true and loving servants, amongst the Muttaqeen and Muhsineen, amongst the Salihin. Ya Allah, we ask that you grant us all of the Sifat of the Mu'mineen. Help us to feel all the feelings of Quran, feel all the feelings of the Hadith of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ya Allah, let us also drink and drown ourselves in the gold mine and spring of the Hadith and the Nasiha of the Sunnah. Ya Allah, we ask that you take us into the Sunnah, drown us into the Sunnah from the tips of our hair to the soles of our feet, from the outer of our forms to the inner core of our being. Ya Allah, immerse us in the Sunnah, drown us in the Sunnah, imbibe us in the Sunnah, Ya Allah, we wish to lead a life according to the Sunnah of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ya Allah, Ya Rahman Rahimeen. Ya Allah, forgive each and every one of us for all the sins that we ever did. Forgive us for the sins that we did in the day. Forgive us for the sins that we did at night. Forgive us for the sins that we did alone. Forgive us for the sins that we did to others. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins that we remember. Forgive us for the sins that we'd even forgotten that we did them. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we are amongst your weakest servants, your most needy servants, your most unintelligent servants, your most unworthy servants, your most uncaring servants. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, you are the most soft and loving, the most generous and merciful. Ya Allah, send your mercy upon us on this night. Send your maghfir upon us on this night. Ya Allah, in this room, there are people who traveled from their homes, only and only seeking you, only and only seeking your pleasure. Ya Allah, we ask that you do riyah of the husnazan. Ya Allah, we ask that you to grant and favor and grace their optimism. Ya Allah, they felt that they would seek something about you. They would learn something about you. They would find something here that would bring them closer to you. Ya Allah, surely you are Harman Rahimeen. You are Ahkum al-Hakimeen. You are the most kareem. Surely you will not let us go back empty-handed. Surely you allowed us to come here because you wish to bestow upon us. You wish to adorn us. You wish to send your fuzzal karam and grace upon us. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, ask that you draw us closer to you. Yourself in the hadith that those of us, if we walk to you, fa'in atani yamshi, that you would come running to us, fa'ateituhu harwala. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we came walking to you. We came driving to you. Ya Allah, we ask that you come running to us, that your mercy comes running to us, that your hidayah comes flying to us. Ya Allah, guide us back onto this deen. Make us have istiqamat and sirat al-mustaqeem. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And let us always meet one another and part with one another only in your name and for your sake. Include us amongst those who will be raised on the day of judgment as the al-mutahabun of Allah. That those who met one another and loved one another and parted with another only in your name and for your sake. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. ربنا تقبل منا إنك أنت السميع العليم وتوب علينا إنك أنت التواب الرحيم وصلى الله تعالى على حبيبه سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين برحمةك يا أرحم الراحمين. آمين.